Hi, I'm Anya Katz, and you're listening to A Millennial's Guide to Saving the World. I started this podcast because I was tired of being stereotyped as lazy, triggered, and entitled. I wanted to give voice to a different kind of millennial and invite us to write a new story. One of a generation willing to challenge the status quo, embrace nuance and paradox, and reject PC culture. This podcast isn't about finding answers. It's about asking the right questions. How can we reinvent ourselves and the narratives we've been expected to inherit? How can we take ownership over the ways we participate in our own suffering? How can we move beyond victimization and into empowerment? How can we fix ourselves to fix the world? It's time for new dreams, new stories, and new futures. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of the podcast. It's been a little while. Three weeks, maybe close to four weeks. It's been a while. And a lot has happened in that period of time, which is why I have not released an episode. A lot has been happening in my life in so many different ways. I feel like over the past few weeks, I've literally questioned everything, um, which was a really humbling experience and a little bit of a terrifying experience, a lot of a terrifying experience, but also kind of refreshing and liberating in a way. Um, I feel like I was sort of posting about this a little bit on Instagram for those of you that follow me, but I was just sort of feeling this weird kind of like stagnancy in a way that I haven't felt in a while, sort of just feeling really heavy and not sure which direction to go and feeling like I had so many options and so many things I was working on, but not feeling particularly inspired by any of them and not really sure why. And I just felt kind of stuck and, uh, I'm really grateful for my knowledge of astrology and, uh, knowing that it's been a very intense Venus retrograde, which often, um, allows us to sort of question our values and what we're doing and what we're spending time on, you know, in our relationships, not just to people, but to things and really sort of questioning, like, is this working anymore? Uh, whatever this is, I think that's a very important thing to think about, um, in life is whether our choices are still working for us or not and having the bravery and humility, uh, humility to admit that maybe they're not working anymore, or maybe I was wrong about it to begin with. So I was really grateful for that perspective and, uh, just for the perspectives I've gained in the past few years around accepting whatever comes my way, not trying to fight it or control it. And so if I'm feeling uninspired or stagnant or bored or confused or just accepting it, um, which doesn't mean it's easy, it's definitely not easy to do, but just sort of saying, okay, what am I supposed to learn from this? Why is this happening? And literally asking that question to the universe or to God or to whomever you want to ask that to uh, yourself, right? You're really just asking yourself, but instead of trying to intellectually quickly solve the situation, you literally wait to see what comes in and what messages you get. And sometimes those answers don't come right away. And I think that's really what I was feeling over the past couple months. The answers weren't coming. Um, and then finally, in sort of one fell swoop, uh, something happened in my life that made me 
be able to really tackle those questions head on. And yeah, one of the things that I really started to think didn't feel right for me anymore was my Patreon community. And uh, you've probably heard me talk about Patreon since I started the podcast. I decided really early on that I did not want to have sponsors on the podcast. Uh, I still would like to never have sponsors on the podcast. I, after working, especially after working for like a decade in marketing and having a food blog and focusing so much on making money through that project, uh, when I started my podcast, I I started it for reasons that I wanted to start it for as far as, you know, what I wanted to talk about and, you know, what sort of um, inspiration I had for it. But I also took it on as sort of like a personal experiment in a myriad of ways. And what I mean by that is I took on the project and I said, I don't want anything to come in the way of this being and feeling artistic and creative and it feeling easy and it feeling authentic. Um, and also I don't really want to control it and I don't want to, uh, become neurotic about it. And this was something I often did with projects. I let them get too far away from me and maybe they started out as authentic or fun. Um, but then through trying to monetize them too much or being overwhelmed by how many times per week I needed to post, they just stopped being interesting. And I think not only did I not have fun anymore, but then I wasn't really delivering anything that was meaningful to the people I was trying to deliver meaningful things to, um, because it wasn't really coming from a place of authenticity or wasn't really coming from my intuition or my heart. It was just like a thing I had to do. It just became a job. And I really, really, really didn't want to make this podcast be a job ever. Uh, even though it sort of is my job. <laughs> so that's kind of challenging. And so I, I understand why I started the Patreon community. This is a website that allows listeners or fans of anyone, whether it's an artist or a podcaster or a musician, donate money as a patron to that project and basically support projects that have a little bit of a hard time making money, like podcasting. So I started the Patreon and I offered all these perks through it. And those perks have changed over the course of time. We've had book clubs, as I'm sure you've heard me talk about, workshops, and I offer stickers and I have playlists and we have a Discord server, which is like an online message board for everyone to communicate. Uh, And it's been great and I've really enjoyed it. And I've, I've been overwhelmed by and moved by the amount of support that I've gotten and the ways in which the community has grown. However, for some inexplicable reason, over the past couple months, uh, and this really came to a head over the last couple of weeks, it just stopped feeling right. And I think what really stopped feeling right to me about it was that, you know, I the reason I started the Patreon to begin with was yes, to make a little bit of money so that I could support myself somehow because I basically quit all of my other jobs and was doing the podcast. And so, okay, I need to somehow make money. And so I'll set up this Patreon account. But the bigger reason I started the Patreon account was because I wanted to build a community. Uh, I've said a million times, I really felt super lonely When I started this podcast, I'd ended my whole life, started a new life, and didn't really know where to find people who are like-minded and who 
um, I could be friends with. And so I'm no joke, literally decided to pick up a microphone and start a podcast and figured if I could talk about my opinions and what I'm seeing and what I'm feeling and what I'm thinking, maybe somehow I will magnetize people like me to me. So it was sort of selfish, uh, but um, it worked and I've made so many amazing friends through this podcast. So many people who I've met in person, so many people who I've communicated with online, um, many of them who I have become close to and who I consider friends and who I value came through Patreon. Um, and that has been miraculously meaningful for me. And not just because I'm making friends, but because all of them are making friends and they're meeting up in person and they're having interesting conversations and they're feeling inspired to follow their dreams and to be vulnerable and to stop things in their lives that don't feel right anymore and start something new and be able to have the support of this community. And that's been amazing. And I want to keep that going. And at some point I just thought, I don't really want to charge for this anymore. I love that people are supporting the podcast, but the fact that I've put these certain things behind a paywall, like the book club, like the discord server, like our workshops, it just started to like feel a little bit off. Um, and so I've decided to cancel it. I've decided to just totally get rid of my Patreon, um, and offer what I was offering basically now for free. So, uh, I'm going to just list some of the things that are changing. And so for those of you who have listened to the podcast for a long time, but have never been a part of the Patreon community, you basically now have the opportunity to join this community in greater depth without having to pay anything. And for those of you that have paid for the community, thank you. I love you. I know who you are and I appreciate you. Um, and some things I'm going to keep private. So all of our previously recorded book club conversations and the previously recorded workshops, um, I've sent a link to you on Patreon so that you can access those indefinitely. Uh, so check your account if you didn't get an email to your inbox. Um, so all of those will be kept private if you supported me at the $10 a month and up level. I want to honor that contribution. But lots of other things are going to become free and are open to everyone. So the Discord server, namely. Discord is a program, basically, that you download. It's a message board. Uh, it's pretty easy. I know it probably sounds like overly millennial to a lot of people to have to download this <laughs> server in order to communicate, but it's really awesome. And we have around, I think, like 120 members on there now. And we have a lot of different topics and channels uh, for you to discuss with people. So we talk about sex and relationships. You can discuss podcast episodes that I put out. Uh, there's places to talk about regenerative agriculture and gardening and food and health and wellness. And there's a general thread where you can just post about whatever the hell you want. We just had a conversation about the whole uh, Whoopi Goldberg debacle. Um, so it's really great. People are organizing local meetups and going to Carsey Blanton shows together. And it's fucking awesome. And it's now going to be totally free. So I'm going to put a link in the description of this podcast episode for you to click on that and join. Download the program if you don't have it. Create a username go to our server, introduce yourself and start talking with fellow listeners. If you, this link is, I think only valid for seven days. So right now it's, um, Sunday, February 6th. So if you happen to be listening to this podcast, uh, after seven days 
after February 6th, whatever the fuck that is, um, and the link no longer works, send me an email, anyakats at gmail.com, A-N-Y-A-K-A-A-T-S at gmail, and I will send you an updated link to join, uh, or you can send me a message on Instagram at anya.cots. Wherever you would like to contact me, you can always join. It will always be free. It's just a little bit difficult to invite people to it because it's a private server, and so the links keep expiring. But there is a link in the episode description, so if you're listening to this uh, within seven days from February 6th, uh, click it, join us. I'd love to meet you. And I know the rest of our uh, community would love to meet you as well. Um, we have one last book club call for memories, dreams, reflections. Um, that's going to be on Monday evening. So for those of you that are a part of the Patreon community, don't worry, we're still having our, our call. You can find the details of that on Patreon. I would like to bring the book club club book club back. Um, at some point and offer it for free. I just need to kind of think about how that's going to work. So we're taking a little bit of a pause on the book book, Jesus, on the book club for now. Um, but that will be back and I will um, update you all when it is. I have all these playlists that I ha- used to have private um, for Patreon subscribers. I've made them all public. So if you go to my profile, you can just search Anya Kotz on Spotify. Again, A-N-Y-A-K-A-A-T-S. You'll find all my playlists. There is a lot of them uh, and you can subscribe to all of them for free if you'd like. Uh, as I mentioned, if you did support me at the $10 a month level or above, uh, check your Patreon inbox or send me an email or a message if you didn't see it. Um, but I sent you the link for how to access all of the previously recorded workshops that we did and the previously recorded book clubs. I'd also like to somehow bring the workshops back. These were a thing, uh, workshops that I offered or fellow patrons offered. Um, so I just got to think about that more and then I will let you know, um, Instead of Patreon, I've decided to create a Substack. Uh, and a Substack, for those of you that don't know, is mainly a writing platform, although they are starting to work with podcasters and are actually going to offer um, podcasters the ability to host their podcast on Substack. I haven't quite done that yet, but I did sign up for an account. If you want to follow all of these updates, um, that's the best place to do it. I'm going to be sending out newsletters, um, which I've never really done before and never been good at. So if you go to, again, anyakots.substack.com, and I'll also put a link in the episode description, sign up there. You can sign up for free. If you really feel called to support the podcast, you can sign up for a paid subscription, but you no longer need to pay to get access to things. So your donation goes to me directly for this project, but it's not in exchange for access to the community. And I feel like that's really the piece about Patreon that started to bug me was that it was like, pay me money for these perks. What I really wanted it to be was donate to this project. Um, and in exchange, you get access to these perks, but it just started to feel like I'm charging money for my community and that sucks. And I don't want to do that. So if you have the means and you would like to support the podcast and this project, I would greatly appreciate it. I've only, there's only one paid option. Uh, it's five bucks a month. And so you can sign up for that. If you would like to make a financial contribution, I think there's like some founding member price that's higher too. If you happen to have the ability to do that and feel called, but everything will be free for now. I will probably reevaluate my life again in another three years, Um, but for now it's all free. So I really encourage you to join with this sort of extra time and space 
and energy that I hope to create by not participating so much in the Patreon community is that I'm going to put more of an effort into the things that I release through Substack. Um, I have a couple of really big writing projects that I'm working on, so I'd love to include uh, excerpts from that and sort of like work out what I'm writing through a Substack newsletter. Um, I also plan to write a lot more about uh, mythology and about archetypal psychology. I've never really been able to figure out what medium to do that in, um, and Substack is perfect. So if you want writing excerpts, poetry, I'll probably be sending out some photography, newsletters, episode announcements, announcements about our book club and more workshops. All of the things are now going to go through Substack. So again, it's anyakots.substack.com is where you can sign up for that. Okay. That's all about Patreon the Patreon to Substack conversion. The other big news that also occurred in my reevaluation of my entire existence is that I'm going to be relaunching the Lunar Circle, which is really fucking exciting. This is my basically intro to astrology course, although it's much, much, much more about mythology and about archetypal psychology. So if you feel kind of weird about astrology, you think it's kind of wooey and strange, I feel you, so do I. Um, this is the avenue through which I discuss narrative and myth and story. Um, but you, it's not pop astrology. I really hate pop astrology. The course is constructed in a way that is really anti what you probably think astrology is. And it's really hard to describe it. Uh, but you can go to anyakots.com slash lunar circle. You can read the description of the program and you can see a lot of um, testimonials that people have left. I've done this course three times already. Uh, it's a month long. It follows the course of one lunar cycle. And so as the moon moves through each sign, we learn about the mythology behind that sign. And we are able to look at our own personal natal charts and learn more about what planets we have in that sign natally. So most people think astrology is just about sun signs, but it's not at all. You had every planet, every planet was somewhere in the sky when you were born, Mars, Venus, the moon, uh, Jupiter, Neptune, Uranus, Pluto, and all of those have archetypes. Um, so we learn about all of that. I will be speaking a lot more about that uh, when we get closer to enrollment. The program will begin uh, April 1st with the Aries new moon, and I will probably open enrollment officially on March 1st. So lots of time, but you can put your name on the wait list now. Um, again, it's onyakots.com slash lunar circle. All right. That was a lot. So I'm going to stop talking about housekeeping shit now. This is an episode with Rachel Krantz, who wrote a beautiful, beautiful, courageous, vulnerable, well-written book called Open, which is available now. You can order it through the link in the episode description or wherever you buy books. Um, it was so... It was so, I was so addicted to it. Honestly, I say at the beginning of the show that I couldn't put it down. It's totally true. I couldn't put it down. And everyone that I've told about it has also read it in the course of like two days. Um, it was so good and so compelling and so refreshing and just the kind of nuanced conversation that I love to have, especially about a complex topic like sexuality and relationships and non-monogamy. Um, and I really applaud the ways in which she chronicles in the book, really, her process in trying to figure out whether the relationship that she's in, which happened to be non-monogamous, was healthy and aligned for her. And so I didn't plan it this way, but I feel like the book 
that she wrote and the conversation that we had, which is really about navigating our own intuition and discernment and admitting that we were wrong about something or admitting that something no longer feels right for us is so on par with the experience that I've had over the past few weeks. Um, and so whether you're reevaluating a project or a relationship or your life course or the kind of relationship structure that you want or what you do for a living or where you live or literally anything, it's so, so important to give ourselves the space for reevaluation. And I know it can sometimes feel like a weakness to be like, fuck, I committed to this and I told everyone about it and now I don't feel really happy, but... I don't know how to get out of it because I feel like an idiot and I committed to something. And so how do I change my mind? Um, and we think that's weak, but that isn't the weakness, right? To be able to do that and to say that is courage. The weakness is when we ignore that inner voice or when we think we're not regular humans with ever evolving needs and desires or humans who make mistakes and we stay committed to a shitty relationship or at the very least a relationship that doesn't work for us or we keep putting our time and energy into a project or a thing that isn't aligned, um, like how my Patreon started to feel. And then what are you doing? You're wasting time. You're wasting someone else's time. You're wasting your audience's time. Um, that's the weakness, right? The weakness is being too afraid or too cowardly to admit something doesn't feel right anymore. So, I hope you enjoy this conversation. I absolutely 1 million percent recommend reading Rachel's book. Um, I always say that vulnerability breeds vulnerability, and I think she was so insanely vulnerable in this book and talked about something that really needs to be talked about. So please buy her book. Um, I literally cannot recommend it more, and I hope to have Rachel back at some point to continue the conversation because it was super fucking enjoyable. All right, I'm going to play you in with a song called River by Bishop Briggs. Um, my friend Nadia is actually teaching me some choreography to this dance, so I've been listening to it constantly. Um, but it really sort of tracks the feelings and the emotions behind leaving something that doesn't work anymore. Uh, and so I thought it would be perfect to play in this episode. Um, again, if you would like to stay updated on all the things, uh, is where you can now do that. Click the link in the episode description to join our discord community, or if the link is expired or no longer works, please send me an email or a message and we will get you added. Um, yeah. Oh, waitlist for the lunar circle that as well. If you would like to participate in the lunar circle or just get updates, as the enrollment date uh, and the course draws closer, anyakots.com slash lunar circle is where to do that. Okay. Enjoy the song. Enjoy this conversation. Also, apologies. There is some like strange buzzing noise that occurs on Rachel's mic sometimes. I'm not sure what it was or is, and I can't figure out how to get rid of it. So it's not too severe, but I always hate when the audio isn't perfect. Um, yeah. All right. Love you all. Thank you for being patient while I uh, figured out my life <laughs> and um, looking forward to this new cycle and this new iteration of the podcast and being having all of you as a part of the community. I greatly appreciate all of you in whatever capacity you participate in this project. So thanks. And I will catch you on the other side. Like a river, like a river.
Rachel Krantz, and I'm super excited to have this conversation. I read her book, Open, which comes out soon, at the end of January, um, and I have to say I haven't, like, like read a book this fast in I don't even remember how long. I was, like, the, doing that thing where you're, like, standing in line at the grocery store reading. It's just, like, <laughs> I couldn't stop at all. Um, so props to whatever you did to, like, make me feel addicted to your book. It was it was a good experience. Um, oh, thank you. Yeah, so 
Uh, I have so many questions, and I feel like your book covers so many topics that I talk about in my podcast. I actually have a second podcast as well that I host with my friend Erin called Whore Rapport, where we have conversations about sexuality um, nice. and ethical non-monogamy and all these things. So, uh, yeah, it was it was nice and refreshing. I'm sure you have this experience as well, like meeting people who you feel like are really like-minded and thinking in the same ways that you are. Um, so we'll get into all of that. I did want to start off, though, by kind of asking you about the book writing process in general. Um, and I think as a young person who also does some writing, especially when considering doing like a large project, especially something that's like autobiographical or semi-autobiographical, like, do you ever feel like, oh, well, I haven't like learned all the lessons yet. And so at <laughs> what point do I like decide it's worthy of a book? Um, I feel like I'm asking for very selfish reasons, but I'm curious if you grappled with that at all. No, that's great. And, and thank you for all the nice things you just said about being uh, glued to the book. That's like exactly what you want to hear, right? So um, I think the the process of working on this was the, you know, repeated realization that there's never going to be just like in life some point you reach where you're like oh now I have it figured out and in fact I could set an end point but um you know after I would I knew that as soon as I would turn in the final draft of the manuscript and it gets frozen at that point you can't make any more changes that by the time the book would come out several months later I would have more perspective and, you know, wiser things to say probably because I would have survived another few years on earth and a few months, sorry, on earth and, and hopefully be progressing in that direction where you're constantly learning more. So yeah, I was kind of making a piece with, there's not going to be a point where I'm sure exactly that I I've learned all the lessons or have what I have to say I'm just going to do the best I can to represent the truth of where I'm at right now um, and hope that there's some value in speaking that truth in a way that's pretty close to the time it's being processed Mm -hmm. so that it's extra raw I guess Mm -hmm. and as I hopefully you know keep getting to live and write then learning those lessons and and seeing the ways in which I was wrong or prove myself naive and just sort of continue to admit to that and grapple with that because that's just the experience of being alive you know we can think we have things figured out but we we don't (laughs) no never fully um (laughs) yeah for sure and I also thought was what was really interesting with your about your book is that I think when I sat down to read it that I really like thought like okay I'm going to be reading a book about non-monogamy and uh, someone's journey through non-monogamy or through a non-monogamous relationship or several and I you know of course you don't really know how the book's going to end until it ends but I feel like it was actually interestingly um and I'd love to hear your thoughts on this too, like if you feel the same, but I feel like it was more about like this discovery process of recognizing you were in an unhealthy relationship and the non-monogamous aspect just happened to be like your particular container for figuring that mm-hmm. out. Um, mm-hmm. But it was sort of interesting. And I like that because I feel like we read a lot of, uh, I don't know, narratives that come to those same 
similar conclusions or like offer a similar journey, but not through the lens of non-monogamy. Um, right. Did you sort of feel that as well? That like on the one hand, you're writing about non-monogamy, but also obviously about just the qualities of any relationship. Um, yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. I mean, I think that because I had the unusual experience of an agent approaching me while I was still in that relationship, seeing a few articles I wrote saying, you should write a book about non-monogamy. And I was like, yeah, I know, but no fucking way am I ready to do that. And, and, you know, but that kind of seed that had already been in my mind was watered. And so I started viewing it through that lens. And that was certainly, um, on the face of it where a lot of the plot supposedly of my life was happening, right? All these different experiences and different forms of non-monogamy that I was exploring, but psychologically, the meat of what was happening was um, this central relationship with Adam, which was the not only the first non-monogamous relationship I was in, but also the first dom-sub relationship I was in, except it was mostly uncommunicated and eventually very unhealthy. And I sort of watched myself over many years um, simultaneously becoming increasingly liberated in certain ways and also bogged down in this relationship and in a lot of ways patriarchal norms that I was supposedly, you know, usurping by being non-monogamous and so sexually liberated. And I thought that was a really interesting contradiction and also the truth, you know, and it's very much like a non-dualistic book of like both these things can be true. (laughs) And there's lots of, um, there's lots of seemingly opposing or binary ideas that I'm much more on the side of both. And, you know, where's, where's the truth in all of it? Where's the compassion and humanity in all of it? Um, including, uh, Adam's behavior that was not okay. A lot of the journey of me writing about that once I was on the other side was really trying to retrace the steps of what happened? What was this dynamic I got so embedded in and lost myself so much in? And why was it so compelling to me? Because it's always a dance, you know? It's never just one person telling the other person what to do. You're both getting something out of the dynamic. And so I think psychologically and personally, I was very interested in retracing the steps of that and and understanding it, kind of presenting myself as a a case study. Um, And I also think I'd seen so many friends fall into similar dynamics. And whenever you see it with your friend, it's obvious, like, you're like, this is not good for you, you know? And you think, oh, I would never, you know, lose myself (laughs) like that until it happens. And it's very it's very humbling. So I guess I was interested in writing, um, the story of that so that it might help someone else in that situation, especially if they're non-monogamous, because of course there's unhealthy non-monogamous relationship dynamics, just like there's so many unhealthy monogamous relationship dynamics. It's human beings. So there's going to be every range of outcomes. And I just felt like understandably, there's not as much written about the, that um, in terms of non-monogamy because we're still just trying to have basic acceptance that this is even a valid way to live. So it makes sense we'd want to present the best um, outcomes and yeah. advice and stuff, but I, I really felt like we're not going to have acceptance unless we have those more 
nuanced, flawed depictions because how will people relate to it? Because everyone knows relationships get messed up (laughs) sometimes. Yeah, yeah, it's something I speak about too. Like, and I don't think it just happens with non-monogamy, but when you choose any kind of like unconventional anything, whether it's like a specific way of eating or a relationship Mm -hmm. or um, because you're so used to being you know, needing to be defensive, right? Because like automatically the culture is like, no, unacceptable. Um, And so we build up these sort of like walls around whatever that unconventional choice is. And I think that often leads to not being totally honest with ourselves, like you were saying, and recognizing that actually we can make mistakes or have like negative uh, or self-harming subjective opinions <laughs> or making decisions within any context. Um, so I think that's yep. important to, I mean, and difficult obviously, because it is difficult to like make an unconventional choice and feel like you have to defend yourself all the time. Um, right. But yeah. Definitely. And it's increasingly, I mean, I think the other thing is that it, it, creates fertile ground for unhealthy dynamics or even abuse if you are not allowed to talk about whether you're unsure things are going wrong in any sort of public way or you just feel further isolated when you're already marginalized because you're like well I don't want to represent kink badly or I don't want to represent non-monogamy badly or you know in the book I'm you see me becoming an ethical vegan And you also see me later uh, returning to disordered eating behaviors. And it was very important to me to show both those things because that's reality. And the veganism is not the eating disorder that existed before I went vegan and subsided for a while and then resurfaced once things became really unhealthy in the relationship as a sort of control tactic. But it's kind of a similar thing, like you were saying, of it's a, a marginalized group that gets really, um, you know, attacked because people get defensive in a similar way with non-monogamy. And so there's a reticence to talk about ever struggling with disordered eating because you don't want people to think veganism is an eating disorder. But of course there's going to be vegans and vegetarians who have eating disorders because yeah. there's people who have eating disorders of any diet and it's people who are you know, more likely to be disciplined around um, moralistic things, which is the personality trait that tends to suffer from that. So yeah, I was just, I was interested in telling the truth and, um, and trying to believe that even though for some people it will confirm certain negative stereotypes that I definitely don't want to reinforce, that hopefully having this nuanced portrait will ultimately be more beneficial than harmful to all these communities I'm a part of yeah yeah and hopefully like too many haters won't read it in the first place (laughs) (laughs) um yeah I also I mean it was very because I feel like I've had such I mean I think this is probably universal in a way like I think so many of us have been in relationships where we were being gaslit or where like we couldn't tell the difference at least at first between like what is a like viable emotion emotional reaction or like what is my own shit and what isn't and like these things are so common um did you feel like now especially after having written this book and I assume like having experienced other 
relationships, non-monogamous or otherwise, like the sort of difficulty sometimes in even talking about something on paper, like, like one thing, you know, like, especially when you talk about power dynamics, right? Like someone engages in a specific activity or like just one action, like, uh, and with the wrong intention and with a lack of communication, it can be extremely unhealthy or, and abusive, Mm -hmm. but like that literal same activity within this other context, um, So, yeah, that was, I mean, I've dealt with that in my own life a lot. Like, wow, it's really difficult to tell. Um, And I'm curious, like, as you were writing, I think you expressed a lot of that. But especially afterward, you kind of look back and think like, wow, it's even more complicated than I thought. Or like, oh, wow, this thing I thought was unhealthy or abusive, like in this little context actually could be okay. Um, Yeah, totally. Um, Absolutely. And and there's things that in my current relationships that, um, yeah, the same, not emotional behavior, but certain things, it would just be very different because it's a totally different emotional context or a level of communication happening. So, um, yes, it does vary. I think that that was a lot of why I talked to so many psychologists. I had all these transcripts, right, from Adam consented to having me record so much of our relationship and so many of our difficult conversations, which was very generous. And um, and it was painful to look back at a lot of it. Um, some of it was funny to look back at. But, you know, I ended up just kind of selecting a few to focus on that I had marked and knew were particularly emblematic because I realized if I go through all of this, this is like, it's too much. Um, I'm just putting myself in an emotionally self-harming situation. It was already like that, but at least I was sort of able to decide I'm going to look at this conversation and then I'm going to interview psychologists about what is going on in this conversation And that was very affirming and also sometimes upsetting because they were often using terms that I wasn't and still often am not comfortable using, like abuse and narcissist and victim. And and I was like, oh, those feel so binary and fixed. And like, you know, I was more interested in like, what is his what is his suffering that's driving this too? Um, what is the dynamic we're engaged in? Because I really remembered that one of the things that kept me very locked in was when people would start to use that language. And I felt like, no, he's not just an abuser and I'm not just a victim, right? It was so reductive or, or they'd say he's manipulating you. And I'd say, but I seem more conscious of his manipulations than he is. So how can he be manipulating me? So I was really interested in, because I had such an accurate record, representing that mental gymnastics that goes on um, and how when someone is very persuasive and begins to talk us in circles, we take on their point of view to the degree sometimes that their opinions and thoughts take precedence over our own. And I just thought, wow, I'm a pretty opinionated, smart, strong person. And this happened to me. And it was very incremental. And the more I learned about it, the more I learned there's some pretty specific patterns to these things, and they're very subtle um, often. And it's 
not this image we have of someone's like off in a corner being evil, being like, how do I manipulate, you know, my partner? It's often very confusing because they might think, I know best, I love Rachel, and if she could just like do what I know is best for her because I'm older, because I'm more experienced with non-monogamy, because X, Y, Z, I'm more logical, I'm not struggling with jealousy, she would be happy. And they impose that. And especially, I think, in relationships of women and men, you see that playing out. Not to say women can't be emotionally abusive or gaslight. They absolutely can. But you do see, I guess, the the psychologists who write on it, that women are on the receiving end much more frequently. And it, mm-hmm. it makes sense, right? Because what, how has the culture conditioned us? Yeah. The men to be think they're right and should uphold... Um, basically white supremacy culture, which is like rationality and either or thinking and women to think we're wrong on some level and need to be fixed. Right. Yeah. Well, and then add in the, like someone's, um, submissiveness, right? Mm -hmm. Like I was just having a friend last night. We both got married, uh, at a very young age to someone quite a bit older than us. And I think you know, looking back, like there was this innocent and authentic desire to like be with someone who we thought knew more than us and to learn Mm -hmm. from them. And we respected that. And, you know, our sexual desire stemmed from our admiration of someone. Um, And then of course, like we were too young to kind of discern whether that person was really totally worth our admiration or not. Um, But I think you know, we can blame ourselves a lot. And it's like taken me a long time to kind of like give myself some like forgiveness and grace around like that was a good intention and like that was authentic and and that trait of yours has followed through um Mm -hmm. and it's not that like your desire to be with someone older or you know I mean more powerful that's not the way to say it but holds these sort of more like culturally conventional forms of power um but that really it's about that like middle ground discernment of like Mm -hmm. is this the right person to allow myself to go there with Yeah. And sometimes you don't learn these things without, you know, going through. I think I say in the book, like I kept thinking the only way out is through. And that's, that's what it felt like. I could feel like, okay, I'm very stuck in this right now, but I'm also exactly where I should be right now. Like there was this dual feeling of like, this is, this is the journey I'm going on. And I'm pretty sure there's going to be another end of it. Hopefully I don't see how, but like, (laughs) you know, but I'm learning stuff and I'm getting things out of this. So yeah, that was another reason I didn't see myself as a victim because I felt like I'm really exploring some things and and learning some things about what I do and don't want to take with me. And I just haven't figured it all out yet. I'm not, I'm not done working this out with this person yet. And I think that's okay. Like you said, having that, that compassion. And also, you know, I think sometimes we, in an effort to move on or like, fuck that person. They were, you know, we like create a narrative, which obviously I've done into an extreme, but I've tried not to create a narrative where it's like, oh, he was fucked up. And, Mm. and like, I was, you know, thank God I emerged from that. I hope it's a lot more complex than that because honestly, I wouldn't take any of it back. And I still feel a deep gratitude towards so many things about that relationship and him and um and towards it just bringing me into um my 
kinkiness, into non-monogamy, into my queerness. I mean, I just, I wouldn't take any of it back. And so for me, I needed to make some mistakes in order to learn a little bit going forward. Okay, like, what do I want to take with me and what do I want to leave behind? Um, I didn't have any real sense of my boundaries personally until I experienced them repeatedly being crossed. So I emerged on the other side really feeling much clearer about oh, okay, I get what my boundaries are now. Like, I get what's not acceptable. And that was surprising to me after spending so long having no fucking clue um, to find that, oh, the dividends started paying. Yeah. Yeah, and that that brings up another point, too, which I thought you spoke about quite well and something that I definitely experienced in my life, which is, like, that feeling of like this sucks but I know that I'm supposed to be here um in a myriad of ways in relationships but also just in like periods of time in my life um and yeah there's something like I'd love for you to talk a little bit more about that where in a way you know you were learning about power and you were learning about kink and queerness and all of these things and like I remember being in I was in a lot of therapy for a little while after my divorce and I was involved with this guy and it was the first time that I was exploring a lot of these things and so much of it felt right. And like, I was like, wait a second, like these are missing pieces, but I feel like there's something slightly off here, like the intention's wrong or like we're not really intimate or like he's not coming from a place of love and care. It's more of like hatred and fear and jealousy. Um, Mm. And yet I kept going back, like even when things were pretty clearly, quote, I also like hate these words, but abusive or toxic or whatever. Um, And like to my therapist credit, she said like, well, you're not done discovering what you need to discover, you know, and like Mm -hmm. you can't. I think I remember asking her, like, when will I stop doing this? And she said, like, well, when you no longer feel called or pulled in that direction, but you're never going to be able to like make yourself leave um and instead like maybe try like you said to like develop these boundaries and think about these things but also you know keep your eyes open and like learn what you came here Mm -hmm. to learn in a way totally yeah yeah and I mean I think the breaking point is often surprising and I had witnessed that with my friend who was in a similar dynamic um but a monogamous relationship And there were so many times where I was like, okay, this has to be the end. (laughs) This is like the fifth time, you know, the fifth breakup. And then you're like, oh my God, she went back. You know, like I hadn't experienced that yet. And then I remember when the end did happen, it was almost kind of sudden. It was like she, the illusion broke. Mm -hmm. Um, Something happened to kind of snap her out of it or really like your therapist was saying she was ready to, to see, to be snapped out of it. Um, And it was the same thing for me. I mean, I won't ruin the ending, but there was, of course, a series of many, many moments, Leah, but there was a sort of sudden, as if like awakening from a spell feeling. Right. Um, And yeah, I don't think I was ready before that point to to have that moment. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it is subtle. I've definitely had that too, where like, I called this person up to hang out with them. And in the period of time between that and going, 
I like looked myself in the mirror and it was just some like magical weird moment where I was just like actually like Mm -hmm. just kidding I can't fucking do this anymore (laughs) um which of course was never what you think you think it's going to be like the big blowout fight or like the crazy thing that they say and yeah Mm -hmm. um so I want to switch gears a little bit and talk more specifically about non-monogamy um there's something that I feel like when I first was sort of well, I've known about it for a long time, um, but when I was like ready to actually start exploring it in my own life, and as an adult, I went to go see this film uh, by someone who's now a friend of mine called it's called Monogamish, and I went to this screening of it, and it's about non-monogamy um, and his his kind of own journey through it. And he was there doing a Q and A, and someone in the audience said, like, do you think it's possible that people could be using these sorts of relationships to avoid intimacy? Um, Mm. And maybe not all the time, but like, do you think that's a a possibility? And he uh, said like, yeah, absolutely. That can definitely happen. And I think I've sort of seen that happen in my own life at times or with other people. Um, And I was so grateful to kind of hear that person ask that question and hear his answer early on, because it made me think a lot deeper about, the structure of the kind of open relationship I might want. Um, And I felt like you maybe not like throughout the book, I felt like you were figuring it out right in real time, (laughs) but like (laughs) the situations in which you felt like you were doing non-monogamy with your partner were good and felt safe and comfortable. And then the situations where you guys were like separate you know, either physically, but then also not communicating or sharing the experience, even like a, in a, you know, like talking about it afterwards kind of a way that that was a bit harder. Um, and I feel like that's, I'm curious if you've heard similar feedback or just like heard or experienced this with people who, you know, that there is this sort of like lack of education around how to cultivate intimacy in non-monogamous partnerships and I think a lot of them end Mm. up like where so much of the jealousy comes from or the discomfort is this like oh wait but I'm doing this thing on paper that I was told to do but I don't feel connected to my partner and that's making me Mm. uncomfortable or feel or feel unsafe right yeah that's interesting I mean I really like you know Kathy Labriola who's Um, the author of Love and Abundance and the expert on non-monogamy, and she's also my counselor. And in the book, um, she says jealousy is like a smoke alarm there to alert you, you know, that something is off, but it's up to you whether to see, you know, is the house on fire or do you just need to change the batteries? And so I think it's that a lot of times when you're having um, symptoms of jealousy or drama it's a sign that maybe like basic needs are not being met. And sometimes it really is about learning to discern, nope, the batteries just need to be changed or we just need to have better communication around something. I mean, I think for me, it's interesting to hear you say that it, it kind of sounded like I was happier in the situations together versus alone. And I think there was a degree of truth to that, but also it was very clear to me that the experiences together while sexually interesting and fun and meaningful on like a friendship level um that what I was really in for was the the romantic connection and that I had specifically with 
um, Miranda, who was the first woman I dated, who's in the book, and then also um, with Liam, who's another uh, man in the book who comes in in all these different surprising forms and moments. And um, those those relationships were very meaningful to me. Um, and eventually later as well, towards the end of the book, where I described sort of a more um, kind of almost ex- exploring a little bit of temporary solo poly um, and finding that was quite good as well. So I think I think the whole journey taught me, okay, I definitely am not monogamous. I'm going to want some degree of this in any relationship going forward. But also whatever this has been with all the drama is exhausting and this level of jealousy is exhausting. And so I'm, it's going to need to be a negotiation and it's going to need to be a negotiation that I can, you know, have a stable life around. Um, and I think that a lot of the jealousy I was experiencing was also just because we didn't have that fundamental level of mutual respect and communication and any jealousy was viewed as sort of my moral failing or weakness. Um, there was things going on, you know, behind my back that you find out about in the book um, that weren't spoken. So of course I was feeling jealous because I was not only adapting to my first non-monogamous relationship, but there just also wasn't for me enough baseline safety and communication and, and respect. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, yeah, now my experience is pretty different. So yeah, I think it just taught me, I, the emotional connection is very important to me. Um, and that, every dynamic is going to be its own thing and different and its own conversation. Um, And what matters is that both people or all people involved feel respected and um, like their boundaries and preferences are being adhered to and that that agreement works for all parties involved. You know, it can't be like a unilateral dictatorship. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, yeah, and I think what I was more referring to is as opposed to like you necessarily being physically present with your partner during the experiences that like there felt like there was an awakening when you were meeting those people at um what desire, I think. Uh yeah. who like in whatever way they were doing it in their own relationship, it really felt like oh, they're like a trusting pair and they're doing this as a team um and that that was like a big piece that you felt like you were missing in your own relationship yeah definitely exactly yeah and I I hope that you know people we meet them a little later in the book and those are different couples that are probably some of the healthiest um examples of what different arrangements might look like and obviously we don't get to go super in depth but I I tried to give a portrait of each of them and and just I continue to be friends with and know those couples and they're they're really, yeah, some of the happiest, most sexually alive, undramatic people. <laughs> some of that it's amazing. Yeah. Like I just and you know, they call themselves swingers or in the lifestyle, but several of them are more what other people would call polyamorous in practice. So I think that really what they seem to emulate is just having that real foundation of um, stability and communication and commitment 
and that that's not to say everyone needs to have that kind of traditional thing um but for them that that really worked and and yeah gave me some idea of oh yeah you could do this and it could like really actually work long term because these couples had all been together over 10 years um some of them 20 so yeah yeah yeah, I don't know if you read, there's this really interesting article written of all people by Giuliani's daughter about oh, um, yeah. being like the unicorn in a situation with a, a, a couple. And like I've often, I mean, I've been in like great, you know, unconventional relationships and struggled with why certain situations <laughs> make me feel jealous, but seemingly identical situations on paper in another context don't. Um, and there was one line in that article that she wrote that I thought really that made sense to me, which is that like, you know, as the third person that what she's witnessed is this, like on the one hand that she sort of has a relationship with each person individually, but then also a relationship with the couple and that, you know, it's sometimes hard to describe to people like, well, what does it mean to like build intimacy in a partner in a non-monogamous partnership? Like, how does the non-monogamy do that? Um, and she provided this like very specific example where she said, like, if I'm present with both people, like that maybe I can ask, let's say the woman a question about her childhood that like the partner never thought to ask. Um, and so in a way, like I'm adding some kind of perspective and, uh, that was sort of like what I was, I don't know, getting from some of those discussions that you had with those couples that like, they were using these experiences to build something right together. Right. Um, Definitely. And it's, of course, you know, you have a lot of, uh, frustration with that within the, polyamorous community of unicorn hunting or kind of using the third in service of the couple so it's a very thin line right because the power dynamic is skewed when when you're the third coming in but there can also be a lot of really fun beautiful things about it and I've seen it work really well and yeah I mean I'm I'm hoping I'll I'll have more of those opportunities myself to be that person or on both ends honestly because I I really like both ends of that dynamic personally and I think non-monogamy in general has so much room to develop so much intimacy because it just makes you both so vulnerable and you have to if it's gonna work you have to really talk about a lot of shit and um and also that it it makes you see your partner anew potentially over and over you're kind of reminded oh, here's how they look at, to a new person, you know? And I remember when they were new to me and, and kind of makes them a little more mysterious to you again, which can be scary if you feel like you're going to lose them, but it can also be very exciting and keep desire alive if you're able to strike that balance of feeling, you know, safe enough, but just kind of a little bit of danger that you don't take them for granted or forget that they're this person that's separate from the couple entity you've become right yeah and and that whole question of power too um is so fucking complex um in so many ways uh did you feel like in sort of you know I mean this is something I've grappled with like that power is not necessarily inherently you know problematic it's how the power is wielded 
um, and in, I don't know, situations that you've had, like, oh, this bird is so loud, um, post uh, this relationship that was chronicled in the book, have you sort of recognized that too? That like, again, if you, um, I think like in the book, you talked about how you really identified sort of more submissively in certain contexts. Um, and whether, you know, again, like in the right context, um, that that can be something beautiful to have someone kind of like take the wheel and drive. Uh, Absolutely. And yeah. that it's about, yeah. I, I think our culture like hears power and thinks bad. Um, right. <laughs> which right. is the, complicated. The consensual <laughs> aspect, the communicated aspect is what makes the difference. And also just the, I guess that the power's not abused, right? Like that even in a really extreme, um, you know, sadomasochistic dynamic uh, where one person might be like a slave and the other's the master or whatever, you still need to have boundaries in some way for the the submissive to let let the other person know that they can no longer consent. And if they don't feel like they have the ability to do that, that's not, you know, BDSM practitioners would say like, that's not that's not ethical. That's not really BDSM. That's veering into abuse and into the bad kind of power exchange. But when it's consensual and you create that container and the submissive person really feels that they do kind of have the ultimate say without feeling like they have um, control in the moment or power in the moment, that's an incredibly uh, liberating, beautiful thing for both people involved and also quite empowering because even if you're being submissive like that's incredibly vulnerable right to to make yourself that vulnerable is powerful I think yeah yeah it's also interesting to see how that played out for you um I mean I guess this is switching gears a little bit but I really loved your kind of nuanced take on there was one paragraph that you wrote about, I think it was in Seeing Liam, maybe, where you, like, answered the door in a slip. <laughs> um, <laughs> and there was this, like, thing about, like, wanting him to know that you were this, like, Madonna whore, like, you know, <laughs> dual special or whatever it is you called it. Um, and and also sort of fascinating how that played out, like, because you were in this, like, quote, primary partnership, and then you were exploring things with other men, that they sort of, like, saw you just as the whore, right? Like, just as the mm-hmm. casual sexual encounter. Um, I'd love for you to talk a little bit about that, and then also maybe, like, how do you, I mean, I know every dynamic will be different, but how do you, how do you navigate that in, uh, in exploring polyamory or in some form of non-monogamy, um, this sort of like, yes, this is casual, but that doesn't mean you can dream me like shit or like not right. listen to what I say. Yeah, that's real. Well, thank you for these great questions. Like I, I really appreciate the opportunity to like talk through some of these things. Mm. Um, yeah, that was for me the most frustrating part of navigating the beginnings of dating on my own um, with men that I felt like I was interested in emotional connection and it wasn't like they were being totally cold to me or anything like that. Obviously, I wouldn't really be interested otherwise, but there was that wall was very much up. Um, And I get it because, you know, maybe it's scary to 
let yourself fall for someone who's already living with someone else. Um, and a lot of these men were also dating and single, not necessarily identifying as non-monogamous and were looking for a primary partner. So I think that put me in like a temporary box in their mind because it's like, all right, well, what is the point, you know, beyond just enjoying this right now? Um, I think the, I'm still very much navigating this. Um, I don't think it's something that has gone away as an issue in my dating life or, or just emotional life. But I, I do think that one um, thing I've gotten better at is being able to clearly say, look, we don't have to be committed to each other in terms of like living together or making future plans or promises or anything. But when we're together in the same room, like I'm not interested unless there's a deep emotional intimacy, unless you're there with me, unless I feel like, you know, on some level you love me and care about me deeply. And it's, that's going to look different, um, in different dynamics and relationships. But, um, I think I've gotten a little better knowing that about myself, that I can at least assert that of, no, this is not just casual sex. Cause if I just wanted that, I could get it in a different way or, you know, I wouldn't care so much about who you are as a person. So, um, yeah, I think I've gotten a little bit better about at least understanding that and asserting it, but it's, it's tough. It's still the same conundrum and it's, it's hard to, um, I think find even one person who's perfectly aligned with where you're at and what you want, let alone, when you start adding in more people and there's other people in the dynamic, it just makes it even harder for all the pieces to line up. But, um, I enjoy the process. (laughs) Yeah. And I don't, I mean, where I've sort of like been going with this is that I can see there's this, and I understand it, like there's this discomfort or this kind of like false binary between sex and emotion or like sex and love and you know I've heard people like okay I'm going to explore non-monogamy with my partner and like where it went wrong was that we like fell in love with these other people and that that like fucked up the you know original dynamic or partnership um but then and I sort of understand that like there needs to be some container some boundaries if you're not interested in straight up polyamory and having these like multiple you know quote primary relationships with lots of people But also, and I don't know, maybe this is more of a thing for women, but, like, I don't really even know how to, like, totally separate my sexual interest in someone from my, like, you know, like, love and care. Um, And I wonder if you've thought about this, too. Like, I wonder if some of it is because our culture, like, our culture thinks there's in love and sex and not like in love love and sex right but like in love or falling in love like speaks to some degree of like being out of control um and I don't know like maybe it's in cultivating a more nuanced understanding of like we can care for lots of people and that doesn't necessarily make it a threat to this primary partnership or to this other person yeah Definitely. And I do, I do think women are socialized to be 
you know, maybe more attuned to that and um, we're taught that love is like the most important thing for us. So, you know, like we're, we're open to it. (laughs) Um, But I do think men as well, they're, yeah, I don't know. I've rarely felt like it's just sex or something and anything. The only time I've um, felt like I've witnessed that is in the lifestyle spaces when it really is kind of spontaneous and anonymous and much more um, just kind of physical feeling. And a lot of the people in in the lifestyle will say stuff like, you know, one thing I have repeating in the book that different women in the lifestyle say, I'll ask them that question. Do you ever, you know, get feelings or, or, you know, and it does it get confusing for you too, basically. And they're like, no, it's just sex. And they would kind of say that, but there'd always be like a little bit of a wink in their eyes. And <laughs> I'm skeptical because I mean, I think swingers often very much create that container so that love cannot develop but I've certainly seen with some of these couples once you start having experiences outside of parties it's it's very hard to not have feelings and why would you want to not have feelings um but yeah I don't know I think it's it's a yeah it's a false binary between love and sex and that perhaps some of the women are saying that or men are saying that because they need to emotionally put it in that box or they need their partner to believe they are. And it's sort of a a compromise of like, we're not going to threaten the emotional foundation of this relationship. We're going to leave something that's just for us, but we're also not going to give up sexual novelty for the rest of our lives. And so I think uh, swingers is often like this attempt to sort of minimize both boredom and jealousy, which is, you know, I've seen it work quite well for a lot of people, nothing against that, but I just saw for me too much of what interests me about sex is psychological and emotional for it to, for that to really be satisfying. Right. Yeah. And maybe it's just a get like this false correlation between love and commitment. Um, and I, I do feel like whenever I've been involved with men and I, I think they had good intentions. They were like, if you're in another partnership, I don't want to cross a line with you. Um, But also in sort of discussing it with them further that like in their own potential future relationships or current relationships that they were drawing these hard lines between love and sex and developing emotions and sex. And it was such a weird thing because I was like, yes, but by doing this, like, I feel, I think how you felt like this, like dirty slut, which is like great in a certain context, but like not great in other context. Um, and it was like, you know, I remember like, you know, like where is like the, the care again, and that, that love can exist within friendship. And like, this doesn't have Mm -hmm. to be that you're caring about me means we're going to like spend the rest of our lives together and live happily ever after. Like, I, I don't know. And, and also I, I wonder if this, you know, in hearing people say these things like, oh, well, in my partnership or in my future partnership, like, you know, I want to be able to um, have sex with someone. But like, I would never stay the night because I don't like trust my own capacity to manage that kind of like ecstasy or euphoria with someone and turning it into something greater. And mm-hmm. when I hear that, I just think, well, but you're just putting up like a, you're like stuffing something into a closet 
that right. may just come out in a darker, less conscious, shadowy way. Um, yeah. And like maybe we should be a little bit more honest with ourselves about how feelings can accompany sex, but that if we're conscious and intentional about it, that like we can control our ability to quote fall in love or to do something that we might not really want to do long term. Right. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know about the controlling falling in love part, but I I do think, yeah, you can make conscious decisions about, all right, not making stupid choices or um, blowing up your life or or whatever else because of that new NRE, um, as they call it. But yeah, I I think it's it's a tough thing because everyone is going to be at a different place right in their journey and so for some people having that wallop is protective and it's their boundary and there for a reason but again it's just kind of because of how we've been socialized women will often default to how men set that pace or set the emotional tone and might feel like we don't have a right to say like no I'm not I'm not interested in this if you're not going to be emotionally connected with me or um, love me in some way that I can feel. And um, I think both those things are okay. It's just about being able to communicate them and figure out, yeah, what what are your needs and, and boundaries? Right. Yeah. And I want to go back to this falling in love thing because I think, I mean, that's also something I think that people say in their not wanting to explore non-monogamy or this is a question I get asked all the time like don't you think by exploring non-monogamy that that will make it more likely for your partner to like meet someone fall in love with you and leave um and I always felt like the answer to that question like is that if they were going to do that like one it's not it doesn't make any sense for me to try to stop or control them or force them to stay with me and also I feel like if that would, if that's going to happen, that can happen in any relationship context. Right. Like they could meet someone at the grocery store and just like totally have this feeling about them and fall in love with them in that sense. And um, yeah, that it's not about, you know, I think when I say falling in love, I don't mean like developing love for someone. I mean, you know, the, that we have these sorts of feelings and we have control over how we'd like to act on them, right? Like, do we tell our partner first? Do we cheat on our partner? Do we wait a couple of weeks to see if it's just that new relationship energy or actually something right. we want to pursue long term? Um, right. And I think that's confusing because, of course, like, I meet new people just as friends and I feel like I've, like, quote, fallen in love with them because they're fucking awesome and amazing totally. and I want to spend time with them. Yeah, totally. Um, but, yeah, it's almost like through non-monogamy and how that non-monogamy really extends to the rest of life too that you start to develop like new ways of seeing relationships like there are more possibilities does that make sense um and it's not just like partner forever or nothing it's like friend that I will have in my life for a long time and who I love but who I think maybe like being in a long-term committed relationship with maybe wouldn't make sense Yes. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. That there's lots of different ways to have deep loving, um, relationships, just like there's different kinds of friendships. I mean, it's all just kind of the same continuum for sure. And yeah, I think that, you know, Aisha, my friend in the book, 
said, I posed that same question to them of like, you know, I'm kind of early on in the journey. I'm like, well, I'm, I know this would be better for me long-term to be non-monogamous, but it just makes me feel anxious that things could change with Adam at any moment. This feeling of the kind of ground being unstable. And Aisha was like, well, that's like not a non-monogamy thing. That's a human being thing. <laughs> like it right. uses the same example basically of someone could walk into a bookstore and meet someone and be like, well, everything's got to change now. And, you know, that's, I think monogamy is a way of making ourselves feel like, okay, we're safer because we're not actively seeking it out. And maybe that is, or that the relationship is safer. And that might be true for some people because they consciously make that decision and that that's worth it to them. And they're able to kind of compartmentalize those other feelings but obviously for lots of other people that's not working, cheating is at a higher rate than ever, especially among women. Um, you know, the divorce rate is 50%. So really what's more normalized is serial monogamy and cheating, which is a form of non-monogamy. It's just, you know, not ethical. <laughs> like, you know, it's so funny that people are like, oh, I've never practiced monogamy, but then you, yeah. non-monogamy, but then you ask like, oh, have you ever cheated or been cheated on? Well, that was not ethical non-monogamy, but it is the most common form of it. Right. Um, and for me, I never cheated, but I was a serial monogamist. And I do think that while dating does provide, you know, I can understand why partners would have that reaction of like, you're putting yourself in this confusing situation or this situation that's going to challenge the relationship. I also think that my relationships will probably last longer than they would have, at least at this point, um, if I were monogamous, because I would just keep dumping people because I not because I was unhappy with them, but because I would really want to explore something with someone else I met and start feeling restricted or just because I would feel like my future was narrowing and I knew exactly how the romantic story of my life would end. And I don't like that because it's like one of the things I enjoy the most in life. And so for me, it's actually like pretty much the only way at this point I can imagine being in a long-term committed partnership is if I have those freedoms because otherwise I just know I would keep jumping from person to person. Yeah, yeah I did the same. I, I, my first two, like, long-term monogam, monogamous, monogamous, not monogamous, monogamous relationships ended because I met someone else and... Like, I never understood how to cheat or how to have an affair. It was sort of, like, as if my loyalty just, like, swapped from one person to the other instantly. Um, But, of course, like, very quickly, I mean, in both of those situations, the person that I slept with or cheated with, I should never have left to be with, you know? Like, that was never supposed to be a partner. Yes, (laughs) Um, exactly. And I think that's, like, the kind of thing that I appreciate non-monogamy for, too, is, like, it gives you this sort of, like, time to process in a way. Like, okay, I feel these, like, crazy things about this person, but if I just wait, like, even a week sometimes, like, I can be pretty clear (laughs) that, like, I don't want to spend the rest of my life with this person. And thank goodness that I didn't need to kind of like I had a teacher that once said that it was called like lily pad hopping from relationship to relationship um because that you know rarely 
works. Um, so yeah. Definitely. Um, yeah. Yeah. I, I agree. Um, I loved, so I'm also a big fan of Tara Brock, which is another like funny (laughs) similarity. Um, but I wanted you to talk a little bit about this concept of like what it was you were ultimately seeking through these non through a non-monogamous relationship. Um, because I feel like that sort of energetic base point, which you described as rest, uh, was something that you could like continually, um, come back to, to ask yourself, like, is this, you know, specific context relationship journey getting me to where I want to be on like an energetic level and whether in times of great confusion and especially for those of us who tend to like over intellectualize the shit (laughs) out of everything um that like that you know I'd love for you to talk about that exercise and um whether that was really helpful in kind of reassessing like is this working or is this healthy or not the exercise of and what would that give you that one yeah yeah okay cool um yeah so I describe kind of early on in the book um an exercise I found from yeah Tara Brock's podcast she's excellent and she kind of says if you it was actually an episode about addiction um and like if you have an addiction or craving that you could just ask yourself the question you know after getting really still and what would that give you and you kind of try to check in on the inside and and you give yourself the answer but you know, the example I give in the book is in my case, the addiction was this idea that, you know, Prince Charming is going to come and rescue me basically. Um, so then you asked, you know, and what would that give you? Well, then I would feel safe and like I played my life right, that I'd arrived in my adult, you know, meaning or something. And, and then you ask it again, and what would that give you? Well, I would feel like I could just uh, relax because then I would know I've laid my life right. And so maybe if I could relax, I would be able to be more present and calm in the moment because I wouldn't be in the future chasing something. And what would that give you? Well, if I could be present in the moment, I feel like I would be better just resting. Like I would feel a sense of rest in in existence instead of this constant sense that life is something that's going to happen once I get to the next thing. Mm. And then the idea is that, you know, she says you wouldn't be able to have that desire, that deep desire, unless it's potential already existed within you. That idea that because you can recognize that is valuable, it's already a part of your nature. Um, and you can just practice giving yourself that feeling, regardless of circumstances and conditions, you know, try just resting in the present moment, try digging to the, the deepest, most inner need. And I found that to be helpful. I mean, obviously, I'm still, will always probably be working on this a lot. Um, I'm definitely not where I want to be on the resting front, but I have a lot more awareness around um, at least the layers that are going on and through practicing just having more and more of those moments where I'm at least able to be like, 
okay, pause. While the muscle gets stronger and it really is just, that's what meditation is. It's exercise for your mind. You know, it's like, it's mind training. Um, And the virtue of it, even in Buddhist tradition is not in itself. Like, so you're really good at sitting and, and listening to your breath. It's like, so that you can practice with the least amount of distraction so that when you're in your normal life, you're able to return to that place or uh, return the mind to that state. So yeah, I found that um, useful, but it's, and there's lots of teachings like that that I've uh, since, you know, been studying the last few years and um, formed a pretty close relationship with a Buddhist monk who you meet at the end and have been going to his sangha regularly. So I try to work in a lot of these things that have been helpful for me um, while also making clear that I am, you know, I have not reached enlightenment. Like this is all, I I really like the expression of like the path is where your feet are. Um, So this is where my feet are right now. (laughs) Yeah, it's, it, it makes me think too about this concept of a safe space, um, which like as a millennial human, like understand but also like take some issue with at times um and because I feel like I've struggled with this in the way that like I do think that for growth to occur like real like important growth you need to feel like you have a safe container in which to process that and to explore like vulnerabilities and things that make you uncomfortable um but at the same time I feel like we have this like weird online psychology culture that basically like looks at or categorizes any kind of challenge or disruption or trigger as bad and something to like avoid or um, censor in a way. Um, And that maybe like the answer is of course, like every answer a lot more nuanced and that yes, like make sure you have that kind of safe ground on which to stand. But welcome some degree of trigger or challenge or disruption because isn't it through those you know periods where we don't feel like totally grounded that we discover something new and different definitely yeah I mean I think like you were saying a lot of the book is really about me trying to figure out like where where is that line you know and I guess kind of the journey from looking to um a man to define that line for me so I wouldn't have to figure it out in some ways and then and also just because that's what I've been taught right was kind of gonna happen and eventually ending up in more of a place of like okay I'm gonna have to do the hard work of learning to discern this difference between you know when when to push myself in that into that discomfort and when to pull back because it's not the compassionate or wise thing to do. And it's always a moving target, so it's very subtle and um, it's just a constant practice. And one I think like getting older is helping with, but nothing more than meditation. And I think the, um, the distinction that was also really helpful to me that... Um, Tashi, who's that monk, said is like, you know, someone else shouldn't be telling you what should and shouldn't be in your feelings. 
it's true that all your initial emotional reactions and thoughts and feelings are not necessarily the truth with an absolute T at all. Um, and you should examine them and question them. But if someone else is telling you, no, that's incorrect and here's what's correct instead, or even, no, that's incorrect, you shouldn't be feeling that, that's not right either because then they're just imposing their confusion on you, basically their subjectivity on you. Um, and you only you can really develop that discernment within yourself. Um, and another distinction that Tara Brock talks about that I've found really useful is real but not true. And to be able to hold both those things of compassion for yourself when you're having really difficult emotions, like let's say you're having a ton of jealousy because your partner's on a date with someone else, you can, and you're having wild fantasies that, oh my God, this moment they're deciding to run away with them, but you know this is probably not true. That doesn't mean you have to discount it as not a real feeling. You can hold both those things at once. You can have compassion and being like, oh, I'm really having that... (laughs) like core abandonment wound is really surfacing right now. And that feeling is real, but maybe it's not based in fact of what is actually happening and to just hold both those things gently. Right. Yeah. And like how much of this too is about like remembering how to cultivate and, and communicate with, and even just like hear or understand our intuition, which I think is a, for both men and women, um, but yeah. maybe especially for women, something like we just didn't get taught um, and didn't learn. And I think get told like throughout our lives and our culture that, you know, like, oh, you are tired. Well, work out anyway. Like you're not tired, mm-hmm. sleep anyway. You know, like you're not hungry, mm-hmm. eat anyway. Like from childhood, mm-hmm. we just don't understand those things. And um, yeah, like someone telling you, you don't have a right to feel the way that you do or in my opinion, like your narrative is wrong and therefore it's not valid, I think um, doesn't help that process because then we look at it and we're like, I feel like I'm going to die though. So like, it doesn't really make sense for me not to like validate that in some way, even if eventually I know I'll move out of it. Um, Mm -hmm. Yeah. It also reminds me, I had this astrology reading a few years ago and this, I was telling this man about like what I wanted to do with my life and what I wanted to create. And I had these like very specific, you know, ideas of who I wanted to do it with and like what the place would look like. And he said like, listen, like I've only been talking to you for 45 minutes and I feel like (laughs) if anyone wants to create something like this, like I have some trust that you will, he said, and I hope this isn't patronizing, (laughs) but like you're quite young still And so I urge you to like lay off the details a little bit and Mm -hmm. focus more specifically on the energy of the thing, because Mm -hmm. I think by like focusing too much on the details that you actually might be limiting the breadth of possibility. Um, And I feel like that in sort of navigating these confusing relational dynamics, you know, going back to that thing of like, well, on the base level, energetically, like does this feel right? And, um, that isn't necessarily a clear answer, but I think it's an interesting, helpful exercise because we can drive ourselves absolutely mad with the like theoretical intellectual shit. And it's like, does this, is this energy right? Or is this cultivating rest? You know? Um, 
So yeah, I totally. think that can, although difficult, can be a <laughs> more useful exercise than all the other stuff. Yeah, I like that. Thank you for sharing that. Yeah. All right. Well, this was great. I'm sure I could have about like three podcasts more worth of conversation with you. <laughs> oh, this was so fun. I yeah. really enjoyed like talking about all this stuff with you. It was great. Yeah, me too. Hopefully one day we can do it in person. That would be fun. Yeah, I'd love um, that. But yeah, good luck with the release of your book. I urge everyone mm-hmm. to read Open by Rachel Krantz. Um, you will likely feel as addicted to it as I did. And yeah, I really also just like commend your bravery and courage and being so vulnerable. I think that's a rare trait and I think vulnerability breeds vulnerability. So I think it's a really important mm. thing to do. So thank you. Thank you. That means so much to me. And yeah, I'm definitely feeling a little scared, but also liberated. And it just, uh, I really appreciate people saying stuff like that. And, you know, anyone who here's this if you read it or don't read something resonates feel free to reach out um i'm on twitter and instagram under my name rachel Kranz, and it really does help to feel like i have all this extended community around me of people sending love or saying that it means something to them so that when the more negative stuff inevitably uh comes my way too it it just helps shield it and and feel like okay I remember why I'm doing this right totally thank you for the opportunity to have one of those conversations yeah thank you for having it with me hello again thank you for sticking around and listening to that conversation with Rachel I very much recommend buying her book it was incredible and tell all your friends if you like it um, because they'll probably like it too Uh, if you want to stay updated and be a part of this wonderful podcast community that is growing uh, every day, um, anyakots.substack.com is where you can do that. You can also click the link in the episode description to join our Discord server, which is a message board for fellow listeners. Communicate with them, share things with them, ask for advice, um, organize meetups in person, lots of opportunities to get embedded. And now it's all free because I'm canceling my Patreon. So you have access to all of these things for free. Um, I hope to see many of you who did support me on Patreon uh, for our last book club call book club conversation, um, about memories, dreams, reflections. Wow. What a fucking amazing book. Um, I feel really awesome about sort of pausing the book club or at least ending it for now on that note and really excited to talk with you about it. And I hope to talk much more about the book on the podcast as well. It was nothing short of life changing and such an important thing for me to read at this point in my life. So looking forward to discussing that with all of you. I do plan to relaunch the book club for free at some point. I just need to figure out how to do that. And so if you subscribe to my newsletter, Substack Thingermabob, anyakots.substack.com, Uh, You can click the link in the description uh, to get there. And uh, yeah, hopefully I can restart it soon once I figure out the details. And I'm going to play you out today with um, a different kind of song called Invocation, uh, Chaitanya Mantra. I thought this was perfect, especially given how Rachel and I ended our discussion I discovered this song on Spotify recently, and I think I've probably listened to it like 76 fucking times in the past few weeks. Uh, I do that with songs sometimes. I just like pick one or two of them and I can't stop. Um, And so this is one of them. I feel like it's been imprinted in my brain. 
And I wanted to choose it because it's beautiful, um, which is why I've listened to it so many times, but also because I think this whole process that I'm talking about as far as reevaluation and reconsideration and listening to our intuition and practicing discernment, none of that works if we're not mindful. And none of that works if we're not quiet enough and we're not comfortable with our own silence and solitude in order to figure this out and in order to listen to our bodies and to what's going on. So whether you listen to a song like this, whether you meditate, whether you do tea ceremonies, whether you go on long walks, um, whatever, whether you write, whatever it is that allows you to tune in to yourself and your own needs and your intuition that will allow you to really answer the question of what the fuck am I doing here in my life, in the universe right now, in this moment, um, that process is critical. And we talk a lot about the importance of intuition and discernment, but not maybe as much about what is required in order to build those things and to tune into those things. And for me at least, and I think Rachel would agree, uh, as she chronicles in her book quite a bit is the importance of self-awareness and quietness and meditation and mindfulness. So I hope this song allows you to think, uh, become mindful, feel into your body, not intellectually think, right? But think in a more calm, embodied, intuitive way. Um, and I encourage all of you to reconsider shit that doesn't feel good anymore. It's okay to make changes. It's okay to change the kind of relationship you want. It's okay to leave a relationship. It's okay to start a relationship. It's okay to quit a job or start a new job or start a whole new career or move to a different place. Hopefully this happens. This is what makes life interesting. It is unpredictable and full of twists and turns. And this is how we learn. And this is how we get to know ourselves and other people better. So I will catch you all next time. Please enjoy this song. Sit somewhere peacefully and listen to it. And thank you for being here. I feel like I don't want to stop talking because I've missed you guys over the past few weeks. Um, but I'm sweating my ass off right now sitting in a non air conditioned room in Thailand because I didn't want the air conditioner to make too much noise in the background. So I'm going to go take a shower and I'll catch you all in the next episode. Sending you my love.
Bye.